I'm Rodrigo Blankenship, and you're listening to the Savage Pads Podcast. Welcome to the Savage Pads Podcast, part of the UGASports.com Rivals Podcast Network. I'm your host, Doug Battle, and in this episode, former Georgia Bulldog, Seattle Seahawk, Detroit Lion, and Oakland Raider Chris Durham joins the show to discuss his life and career since his time in Athens. Then former Tennessee fan, current UGA fan, future U.S. hero, Grant Amick returns to the show to talk Georgia's dominant performance against Auburn and what was one of the most glorious Athens days in recent memory. Uh, We've got a great show coming up with Chris Durham, who, by the way, is also going to share about his time being quarantined in Italy. I know that made the news a few months ago, but before we talk Italy, I want to take a moment to highlight my favorite Italian restaurant in the classic city, and that's De Palma's Cafe. Located on 401 East Broad Street downtown, De Palma's Italian Cafe is the place to find truly great pizza in Athens, Georgia. And I mean truly great. Think endless pizza combinations with premium toppings to devour in a large space with distanced and private dining. In addition to their delicious pies, De Palma's also serves some of the most savory seafood charmaine, tortelloni, and homemade breadsticks you'll ever eat. And for game days, the most sacred days of the year, De Palma's has the party trays that will take your game day spread to the next level with options such as baked penne bolognese, chicken parmesan, and homemade lasagna starting at under $10 per serving. De Palma's has managed to find a way to make Saturdays even better for dog fans. Call in your game day tray or request your dining reservation at 706-354-6966 or simply visit DePalmasItalianCafe.com. De Palma's loves the dogs. We love De Palma's Cafe. And they're serving up this episode of the Savage Pads Podcast. Stay tuned. Practice every day. Man, oh man. Mono ain't mono. He, he definitely sticks out reminds me and myself. As close as we uh, have right now to rope on. When we scored, I honestly did not know where I was for about five seconds. Early on, you could see with Jake, you know, just like with Fran talking to him. Maybe one of the most underappreciated quarterbacks in the country. And we got to keep feeding the running back. I, I don't think we've yet to see the tight ends. I think Georgia does a great job of bringing pressure on third down. Turn around two weeks later in the SEC championship, we look like a completely different team and we made them look like a completely different team. I mean, it's hard to get emotional thinking about it. And it was my job to kind of get outside the corner and uh, as soon as I let it go, I knew it was good. From that point on, I kind of began to trust the Eric Murray is my quarterback. The team was just special. I was famous. He was onside. Everybody respects specs. That's what every Georgia fan should hinge their hopes on. Alabama and Georgia are the best two teams in the country. I feel like we are the true running back team. I have great confidence that we're going to see the personification of Georgia football. All right. Now, former UGA and Detroit Lions wide receiver Chris Durham is on the line. Chris, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. I look forward to it. Yeah, well, we're pumped to have you. And uh, uh, last time a lot of Georgia fans see you guys is in your last game in the red and black. Uh, and I know there's quite a bit of fans who followed Matt Stafford all the way and may have seen you catching some TDs in Detroit a while back. But regardless, can you walk our listeners through your journey since entering the NFL draft in 2010 and take us to where you are now? Okay, yeah. Um, so 
I entered the draft after the 2010 season. So, mm-hmm. um, came in in 2006 with, uh, you know, some great players like Matthew Stafford, Noshan Marino, Rashad Jones, uh, Geno Atkins, you know, a lot of, a lot of great guys were in the signing class. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then from there, I, uh, got drafted by the Seattle Seahawks in 2011, um, spent about a year and some change with, uh, those guys before heading on over to Detroit in the 2012 season. I was in Detroit from 2012 to 14, where I kind of reconnected with, uh, Matthew mm-hmm. there for a couple seasons. And, uh, also, uh, our old fullback, Sean Chappis, uh, Sean was there with us as well. Um, and then once I kind of finished up on the tail end of my career, I spent a season in Tennessee with the Titans and a little coffee stop in Oakland for, uh, a preseason in 2015. And then since then, I actually went over to Parma, Italy and played two seasons with them in 2017 and 2018. And, uh, from there, just kind of went to the workforce and worked at the NFL corporate office for a little while. And now I'm, uh, you know, doing some real estate development. Oh wow! So you're you're done with football. You're no longer in Parma. No, no longer in Parma. I still have. I'm done playing, but I still actually help with coaching and oh, like okay. player personnel, trying to recruit, um, trying to recruit some guys over to come over and play. So yeah, yeah once I once I got to be in my 30s, I kind of. Uh, my body wasn't responding like I, uh, you know, my last game there, my body just just wasn't having it anymore. And that was yeah. kind of the telltale sign that it was time for me, um, especially considering, you know, you are truly playing for pizza in a sense. So <laughs> it, was, it, was, it, was, uh, it was it was time for me to hang up the cleats. Yeah. So, so you're playing for pizza. Um, what led you to do that? What After playing in the NFL for a while and playing in the SEC, what led you – to play for pizza in the Italian football league? Um, I don't know how many people actually know there, there is a book called playing for pizza. That's why I used to <laughs> the, John, the John Grisham novel. Um, yeah. And, uh, so the whole story behind that is that in 2012, when I arrived in Detroit, Matthew had just, Matthew's an avid reader, like always learning, always doing stuff like that right there. And he actually had given the book, um, to me in Detroit in 2012 and I read it and the whole premise of the story was about a quarterback for the Cleveland Browns um, you know was playing in the AFC championship he's third string both first and second go down with injury he comes in and they end up losing the game and he's kind of blacklisted from the NFL and he ends up in a city called Parma Italy playing for the Parma Panthers and it's all about his journey and his experience in Parma well Fast forward, you know, five years later in 2017, I get contacted by our team president over in Parma, Ugo Bombaccini. And Ugo, you know, recruits me to come play in Parma. And long story short, I kind of remembered the book. Why did I know about Parma besides the food? And I decided to go over there and still had the itch to play. And ever since then, I've loved Parma. I love the culture. I love the language and the atmosphere and everything there has to do with uh, being over there. And I spent two seasons with those guys and I still go back uh, pretty frequently to visit. Yeah. Wow. Well, I've, I've never been to Italy, but I can't imagine moving over there uh, to play American football. Anyway, that's why I like, I, I respect the, uh, 
the love of the game to go out to Parma just to play ball, eat some pizza. Oh, I'm, uh, I'm so telling you, like, all I just talk about Parma all day, every day, because Parma is literally back to why you play the game when you're in high school, why yeah. you play the game when you're young. Because you just love the game, you love competing. And most guys over there, they have nine to five. It's a club sport for them. <laughs> I mean, we, we have practice three days a week. Sometimes we don't even, because guys have to work, sometimes we don't even have enough offensive or defensive linemen to run a full practice. <laughs> and, you know, like it, it's frustrating at times, but it's also somewhat beautiful because, you know, after the game, I went from playing in Seattle and playing in Georgia and playing in Detroit and doing all this in front of, you know, 70, 80, 100,000 people every week to my games over there. The first game I played in, we had to wait for a 15 and under soccer team to get off the field so we could go <laughs> play our game. And there were 100 people in the stands. Yeah. It's that. I yeah. mean, it was an eye-opening experience, that, but it didn't matter because guys were out there, their moms, dads, girlfriends, grandparents, everyone was there after the game. The other team doesn't rush off. They hang out. They grab beers. They just sit there. We eat on the field after the game and just hang out for probably two hours before, you know, everyone kind of goes on their way. Grandmas are down there with like food they baked and brought to the stadium. Yeah. It's awesome. It was, it was really cool. Fell back in love with the game. And I'm still this morning, I was talking to the team president and the other guy trying to find a coach for next year. You know, like we don't have a defensive coordinator, head coach, we got a guy who can do offense, but he's not ready to be a head coach. And so we're trying to figure it out because we had, unfortunately, the last two years, our one coach had been there for like 14 years. He and his wife moved back to the U.S. because he was, um, he came over to play and then met a girl, got married, and was the head coach for like 10 years. But they decided to move with their kids back to the U.S. Yeah. And then and, uh, our coach last year um, practiced on Friday it was a week or two weeks before the first game, he had a brain aneurysm and didn't make it. And so that's when that happened, right? Was I was coming up like that happened Friday and I landed like Saturday. Yeah. Wow. So he, he literally died. Like, and I was like leaving. I was like, Oh my God. Yeah. And so he had been our defensive coordinator for 20 years. Like, been with the team since like 1988. And it was his first year being the head coach. And, just passed away and I was like, so now we're trying to find coaches and do all that stuff. Yeah. Wow. That, uh, wow. Yeah. Wild times. <laughs> <laughs> that's a lot. Especially, yeah, so you know, anybody that's a coach or, you know, retired coach that <laughs> wants to enjoy a basically, uh, once in a lifetime paid vacation in <laughs> Italy, let me know, man. I, you know, I would do it if I knew anything about, uh, defensive coordinating, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that. Italy's a, seems like a place, a desirable place to uh to do a kind of short stint like that so i'll uh yeah, i for real i'll if <laughs> if i think of anybody i'll let you know um but you you made headlines in march after tweeting out a video from your quarantine <laughs> in italy at the beginning of uh coronavirus so at that time coronavirus was foreign to those of us in america it was uh with the thought of quarantine and and all of that just seemed drastic um so how did you end up stuck in italy and what was that like for you uh so i went over to help coach um and kind of help the guys get ready for the season in february so uh 
the season in Parma is a spring league, so it generally goes – guys come over in January or February, and it goes through, like, June, July. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and so I went over in February. Uh, my girlfriend is actually from Parma, so <laughs> okay. that was part of the motivation to uh, continue to stay with those guys. <laughs> and to do I got stuff. you. But, you know, um, so I went – I went to Parma to, you know, for a few weeks and I had kind of heard of coronavirus as I was leaving in early February, um, kind of right after the Super Bowl. Uh And so, you know, you kind of heard it, but it wasn't as big of a deal. It's kind of only in China, all of that. And once I arrived in Italy about, I want to say three, three weeks later, it's, um, you know, everything started kind of blowing up and, Next thing I know, like, Paddle's, like, not able to go to work, and she works in Milan, and she's not able to go because they're starting to shut down the city, and they're Mm -hmm. starting to have everything go on there. And next thing I know, they've literally locked down the entire city. Like, you can't travel from one region to the next, which is kind of the equivalent from going, like, from Georgia to Tennessee. You can't travel Mm -hmm. between, between regions. Everything's kind of locked down. Um, and if you do, you actually have to fill out paperwork to go like government paperwork. Um, it's not hard. It was just like a website. You just download it and type in what you're doing and where you're coming from. And if you got stopped, you just show them. So it wasn't mm-hmm. like a big deal. Gotcha. Um, but yeah, so, you know, we're in quarantine for there for a few weeks and, um, you know, as everything kind of got shut down and I saw it as the U S was starting to shut down and shut down travel, I was able to, uh, kind of come back there at the end of uh at the end of march i was able to kind of make it back to the states right as soon as we shut down so i was basically in quarantine for you know in italy for about two three weeks got home quarantined myself for two or three weeks and then the u.s kind of shut down and i was just like stuck in my house going stir crazy (laughs) yeah so it sounds like the virus kind of followed you i mean i'm not saying that you brought it over or anything (laughs) um well Exactly. Yeah. Well, going back to your time in the NFL, uh, I want to talk about your time with the Lions for a moment because okay. you competed in college uh, alongside Matthew Stafford, but against Calvin Johnson, and uh, mm-hmm. and of course alongside Sean Chappis as well. What was it like teaming up with those guys in the NFL? Some former teammates, but also a former rival. Uh. Well, I know there's a lot of info about Calvin about how humble and quiet and everything he is, mm-hmm. and. It's all true. I mean, the thing about it is, is that people see how great he is on the field and what he does on Sundays and stuff like that. But Calvin was literally one of the hardest workers that you'll ever meet. And the first day I arrived in uh, Detroit, you know, I walk in, I start meeting with uh, the, the receiver coach, Sean Jefferson. Um, so Sean was like a 12-year vet, had played a long time. And so, you know, he obviously has a lot of knowledge. Well, as soon as I walk in to meet with Sean, he was like, if you want to be good, just follow him. Don't, he goes, don't ask me a question. Don't do anything. He goes, if you want to be good, just follow him. And I mean, he was just saying like, this is your leader, follow him. And that's the way, you know, that's kind of what it was. I mean, I was sitting there at that time living with Matthew. So we were getting to the facilities, Mm -hmm. you know, an hour and a half before the first meeting, you know, because Matthew was, they're usually meetings start about seven thirty. Matthew usually we usually ar- like would arrive around six a.m. Calvin would be there. Calvin would come and sit in the meetings with the quarterbacks. He would be there, you know, working on his body, whatever was a little bit injured or this, or working out to you know keep his strength and all that. 
And so I learned so much just about how to be a pro being around a guy like Calvin. And I mean, of course you see him when we competed against each other from the Georgia, Georgia tech rivalries and mm-hmm. you see how great the guy is. And so it was, it was pretty, uh, pretty special to be able to be a guy, around a guy like that. And then also to team back up with Matthew because we came in together, caught my first pass from him, my first touchdown in college from him. My first touchdown in the NFL was from Matthew. So that was a pretty special experience in my life. Yeah. Well, I know one of the greatest Detroit Lions uh, drives ever was against the Cowboys when it was really a combination of Matthew, Calvin, yourself, and and Reggie Bush driving down the field uh, with just a minute left on the clock in in 2016. What do you you recall from that one and and Matthew's leadership and taking you guys to victory? Well, the big thing is, is I think Calvin had like 250 yards. Yeah, he had a ridiculous day. Like that. Yeah. Like that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in the game. I mean, I remember a play early in the game. It was a slant that he caught and took it like 70 yards and got knocked out of bounds on like the three-yard line. Um, yeah. And then he had another big catch over the middle and like double coverage, uh, you know, right there in the fourth quarter. But one thing I do remember about the game is right before that drive, um, you know, we had an opportunity to kind of drive down and go score. Well, I think we actually turned it over on downs. Um, and then, so they get the ball back. Our defense kind of holds them and does all of that. Well, we get the ball back um, with like, a you know, whatever, a minute and something left. And I remember Matthew coming in. He's like, all right. He goes, we get the ball thrown over the middle of the field. Like, hey, you got to get on the ball. We got to spike it. We don't really, I don't remember if we had one timeout or no timeouts left. And then he goes, we're going to have to get a chunk. Like we're going to have to have a big play somewhere. And so, you know, fortunate enough for me, Matthew came in, rolled to his right. I was lined up to the left. He hit me on a big like go route into cover two, which is a hard throw, especially when mm-hmm. he's going right, throwing back left. Yeah. Um, I was actually knocked out of bounds by a Georgia guy, uh, Jakar Hamilton played safety for us, I think, my last year or two in Georgia. He he was a JUCO guy. He came in. He was playing for the Cowboys at the time, and he knocked me out of bounds. Um, But then next play, Matthew hits Calvin. We get tackled on – he gets tackled on, like, the one-yard line. Everyone thinks he's in. Then Matthew, with five seconds left, instead of spiking it, he just dives over the the goal line, which no one had any idea he was about to do. Like, did you have any idea? I saw I saw the video where he's he's yelling everybody, you know, telling everyone he's going to spike it, including his own teammates. So I'm assuming you think that's what he's going to do. Yeah, that's what he's screaming doing. And so it's not like we had some fake plan, yeah. you know, code word to <laughs> not spike it. But, yeah. you know, talking to him, he actually said when I got down, uh, under the center to spike it. He goes, the defensive line, they weren't even paying attention. They were just expecting me to spike it. He just like, dove over. Well, the thing about it was is that they review the play and we're lined up just in case they say it's not a touchdown because if it's not a touchdown, I think there was, you know, we had to basically run a play because there's only two seconds left or something like that. So it was uh, – it was kind of stressful, but he kept saying, no, I got in, I got in. They never tackled me. So he goes, even if I didn't get the ball over, he ran, he in. ran around and yeah. back into the end. So yeah. luckily we were, uh, I didn't even see it. Like I saw him dive and then I turned to look at the ref 
to see if he was in. And when I turned back around, he was running into the end zone with like Reggie and everybody. He's spiking the ball, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, that was that was one of my favorite NFL drives I've ever seen. But NFL quarterbacks are often judged by Super Bowls. And as a result, a guy like Matthew Stafford's career is often overlooked. Um, however, many forget that he inherited arguably the worst team in NFL history and, and played a major part in making the Lions relevant again. Having played alongside Matthew, uh, how do you view his career in comparison to some of the NFL greats? Uh, you know, I think I can actually have a bit of a different experience just because mm-hmm. I have firsthand with being within the organization and also kind of now watching him and watching what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like, you know, Matthew is definitely going to put up the numbers. He's always been the intelligent guy that, that puts his team. I mean, you saw, what was it last week? He, you know, since he came into the league, only Drew Brees has more fourth quarter comebacks than he does <laughs> Crazy in the last 12 years. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just the sense that he has always had to play close games or come from behind and stuff like that. And, you know, he's an incredible athlete. He's an incredible quarterback. He's probably the smartest football player I've ever been around. Like he just understands and knows things that you don't see that most people will never see or understand. Um, Mm -hmm. He's very calculated. And so, you know, you just, you hope that at some point he, He's able to, you know, get that franchise to the winning record, to winning playoff games, and to get to that Super Bowl because he's always going to have the numbers. And his best bet in being a Hall of Fame quarterback or to have that kind of, I guess he's, he's already got a long career, but that longevity and to continue, yeah. you know, to progress is to get to get Detroit to a winning path. And unfortunately, it doesn't look like it's, you know, they have uh, they have some more steps to take, and hopefully, it happens lot sooner because he's getting on the tail end of his career right but like you said he's he's led he's led some comebacks and some two-minute drills at the end of games you know up there with with the best with Aaron Rodgers and Tom Brady and uh and so I guess all of Dog Nation's pulling for him at some point to build a legacy where he gets some recognition for the kind of play he's had over the years um but at Georgia, there's a new quarterback getting some recognition, and he's not a consensus number one draft pick by any means. But, <laughs> uh, but at the same time, there's this feeling that Georgia may have found their guy, at least for the moment, in the mailman uh, in Stetson Bennett. What are your thoughts on Stetson and uh, his performance thus far this season from what you've seen? Well, I mean, just looking at someone who started preseason camp as the number four quarterback, I mean, I don't know how many reps he was actually getting. And he sure wasn't getting any reps with the first team and probably not even the second team. So (laughs) you have to commend him on staying ready. Like all of a sudden Newman opts out and then JT Daniels is not cleared. And then all of a sudden Juan's now the starter, your second team. So you're trying to get this young freshman as many reps as possible with the first team to get him ready. And, you know, Stetson's just probably there. You know, I think they said that JT Daniels was practicing but not going to play because he wasn't cleared yet. See, I think Stetson's sitting there probably not getting many reps, but mentally he stayed in, and you just got to applaud him for mentally and physically staying ready for his opportunity, not knowing when it's going to come or not knowing if it's ever going to come. So to watch what he's done, especially on third down against Auburn, 
I mean, talk about just making plays. And, you know, you got to even applaud the offensive line and everything else. I mean, they were opening up holes. The running backs were gaining, you know, five, six yards of pop. And yeah. it, was, it was nice to watch, even if it's more of an old-school, traditional offense and it's not kind of an air raid, which everyone's gone to. It was good to watch somebody that he seemed comfortable. He seemed to know what to do with the ball, even in, you know, situations where he had pressure in his face and he made a lot of good decisions. So I enjoyed watching him. I just hope they, uh, he continues. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I know quite a few people who hope the same, um, but having been a part of one of the greatest UGA receiving cores in history with alongside AJ Green and Tavares King, do you feel this group of receivers for Georgia has what it takes to be a special unit in a league where receiver play is really increasingly important? Yeah, I mean, definitely. When I came in, we had Muhammad and Sean Bailey and those guys. And then yeah. as I left, we had guys like you said, AJ and Tavares and Marlon Brown and all of those guys. I mean, I was fortunate enough to play with a lot of good players and looking at the talent that, the guys have right now i mean i would say they're probably very similar to what we were when i was there i mean you had a lot of guys with a lot of ability a lot of talent yards after the catch um you see pickens what he can do and mm-hmm. then i forget what's what's number 10 i forget his name Kears Jackson. Like a redshirt Kears Jackson. yeah yeah he looks great with the ball in his hands i mean he made a great little you know spot up over the ball and then took it you know turn around and turned it into 15 20 yard gain i mean you see the ability of the guy that you can just get the ball to him. So, you know, I think that's what Stetson needs to, you know, do is he stays being our quarterback is just get the ball in their hands. They're playmakers. Let them go do what they do and the reason that they're there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, absolutely. Well, Chris, I know you are on a tight schedule over there and want to be considerate of your time. Um, so I want to thank you again for, for joining us. I know our listeners enjoy hearing from, one of the greats, one of the greats from over the years. And uh, what what's next for you, Chris? What's uh, what's next on your journey? Ah, man, uh, your guess is as good as mine. I'm waiting for uh, <laughs> kind of the belt to return back to some form of normalcy for hey, us. Hey, I, I, I hear I, you there. <laughs> yeah, so we'll see. I'm just uh, excited to watch these guys this fall. Let's hope that they, you know, are able to stay healthy and, you know, not only physically, but also with the virus and pandemic and everything that's going around. You see mm-hmm. that, you know, a few guys in the NFL have caught it. Let's just hope our our dogs can stay safe and continue to use this momentum to push us towards our goal, which is a national championship. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Chris, again, thank you for your time and uh, wish you the best moving forward where, wherever uh, life leads you uh, in this crazy time. All right, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Yep, thanks, Chris. All right, and now Corey Amick is on the line. He returns to talk some Georgia-Auburn as well as some Georgia-Tennessee. Corey, man, what a game, right? Oh, dude, what a game. <laughs> That's really all you can say. I think every every UGA fan needed that um, just to remind us of you know, how good Georgia football can be when we play our game and when our, you know, our players execute. And I mean, I'm, I'm just leaps and bounds happier than I thought I could be. (laughs) Yeah. I I mean, we talked about this last week. We were expecting an ugly game and I think the most fun Georgia games are the ones where there's expectations like that. I remember 2017 Mississippi state coming off a somewhat ugly Notre Dame win 
Uh, and it was Jake from second start. Mississippi State was coming off a big win over LSU at home where they looked amazing. And everyone expected if Georgia was going to win the game, they were going to just edge out an ugly defensive battle. And then we went out and <laughs> just dominated. Uh, this week felt exactly like that. Yeah, I, you know, I, I agree entirely. I think you, know, you sit back and you look at pretty much how we answered every single question that you know a lot of fans and also you know the national you know, media and people talking football were were questioning about us in week one. Um, the team, you know, showed up and the coaches made adjustments and we pretty much, you know, showed every single one of those, you know, issues that we found in week one. And we're like, these aren't really issues anymore. And, you know, whether week one was a little bit of a, you know, let down look ahead game because we knew we had bigger games coming or, you know, might have just been, you know, Arkansas was better than we originally thought. Um, it just, it's really cool to see just how the dogs put it together, um, how well they played you know, how much fun they looked like they were having. Like, it's so enjoyable to watch a game when you look at the players yeah. and you can just, like, feel and, you know, vibe off their energy. And it was yeah. it was just a great game all around. Yeah, Stetson was feeling himself. Uh, a lot of those defensive guys were. And honestly, man, our play calling on offense, I thought was phenomenal. I thought that was the best called game I've seen in a while. I know there were some complaints that we got conservative in the second half, uh, but it felt like a game where the only way Auburn was going to score points was like on a pick six or something. So I thought it was smart how we approached the second half in this game. Uh, it's not always the case. You know, that's not always the best thing to do in this game. I thought it was, I thought Todd Munkin mixed it up really well when they would stack the box. I thought he punished them for it. And when they would not, I felt like the the ground game was real impressive. The offensive line uh, was just completely dominating, which was very opposite of last week. So we've put together 10 stats that tell the story on both sides of the ball. And I'm going to start with uh, a little defensive stat. Uh, this one centers around Bo Nix. Bo Nix went 3 for 18 on throws of 10 yards or more with one INT and a passer rating of 16.9. So I'm not sure anyone really knows how a passer rating system works. But I do know it's on a scale of zero to 158.3. So I don't want to get too math heavy in case any Auburn fans listen in, but I would say 16.9 is pretty low on that scale. Um, You know, this hats off to our secondary and, you know, losing Richard LeCount early in the game, um, having guys step up, play really well. You know, we could talk all day about how Tyson Campbell played and and took on Seth Williams. But I would just say this is a huge game for our secondary just because, Historically, since Kirby's been there, they have kind of been the weak link of our defense, if there is one, mm-hmm. um, and mm-hmm. to see how well they, they locked down the Auburn's wide receivers. And, um, you know, I think prior to this game, everyone was like, Bo Nix has more experience this year. And then, you know, after the game, it's all, well, Bo Nix is still young. So I don't know which one it is, but I do know that our defense is really, really good. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy how Bo Nix had so much experience going into this game and came out of this game apparently with so little experience from what we're hearing. <laughs> Uh, um, all right, so next next stat of the game. Stetson Bennett completed 61% of his passes for 240 yards, one touchdown, no INTs, and a QBR of 91.6. Yeah, so we saw from Stetson, uh, first off, respect the Stets. That's the new thing now, respect <laughs> Stets. Uh, we saw Stetson do exactly what we wanted him to do. He's balling out, man. That first drive... When he rolled out on third down when Big Cat Bryant was coming for the sack and he rolled out, 
I haven't seen a Georgia quarterback do something like that in a long time. <laughs> uh, found the open Kyrus Jackson on the sideline through an accurate pass. So I don't think he played a perfect game by any means. Um, I know there were some passes he missed. John Fitzpatrick on that first drive, I felt like could have had a touchdown with a uh, with a better pass there. But so no, not a perfect game, but ultimately took care of the football and got the ball to the right guys, made the right reads a lot of the time, and really managed the game well. Yeah, you know, I that I think that that third down pass was like an out of body experience for every UGA fan of like, is this what it looks like to have like an elite quarterback and then it's like Stetson Bennett and it's like who cares? Like I'm here for it. Um, I thought <laughs> yeah, he played well. I do like how you know we started off the game you know targeting our tight ends. I think that just makes defenses back off a little bit of you know our, our skill guys on the outside um so i like yeah. what time is doing there i like that Stetson's one to to go to the middle of the field if it's open um but yeah i think yeah. you know he improved a lot from that second half of the arkansas game and i was i was really impressed all around yeah i was too uh next big stat was the fastest player in football as we hear during every auburn game uh and as Corey and i have discussed over the years anthony schwartz did you know how fast he is Corey? Um, I mean, I just know he's, you know, an All-American in track, so that means he's got to be fast. Yeah, he's really fast. He's a really fast kid, and uh, he also had one rush for negative four yards. Yeah, so I think we, we texted him before the game, and I think in my head I set that over-under for five times we would hear about his speed in some way, whether it was track star, yeah. fast, lightning quick. Um, but only hearing it, you know, <laughs> once from Kirk really showed how well our defense contained the so-called fastest man in college football. Um so, you know, it is what it is, but maybe he just got slower. Maybe he put on some, some quarantine pounds. I don't know, but either way, I was yeah. I was glad to see the, the speed demon contained. Yeah, absolutely. Um, he did, I will say, Anthony Schwartz got, he burned DJ Daniel on one ball that yeah. was just overthrown. Bo Nix managed to overthrow the fastest player in football. So maybe Bo Nix is faster. His arm is faster. Bo knows. <laughs> um, all right, fourth stat. Kyrus Jackson had nine receptions for 147 yards. Nine receptions for 147. I don't know the last time I've seen a Georgia receiver with that kind of stat line, especially without a touchdown. <laughs> um, kind of amazing. Kyrus would have had a TD if, if Stetson had, uh, had thrown a more accurate ball on that long ball. He made an incredible adjustment to catch that one. But great to see a coming out party for him. He really seemed primed for a breakout year last year. Um, and, and suffered some injuries. You know, it felt like he might get lost in the shuffle. But Kyrus, even with the emergence of Jermaine Burton and obviously George Pickens, Kyrus has carved out a nice role for himself on this team. And especially with Stetson Bennett behind center, uh, seems like Kyrus is going to pad some stats for Georgia. A guy that many expected to pad the stats for Auburn was Seth Williams, who seemed impressive, um, and yet he only had three catches for 34 yards. Yeah, uh, I mean, this is just, you know, Campbell's coming out party as, you know, a lockdown corner. Yeah. Um, you, you look at those two guys, and you're like, all right, this is a great matchup. You know, you know tall, lanky guys. You know, Seth Williams probably has a little bit more muscle than Tyson Campbell, but, you know, regardless – they're pretty much physically built for a matchup like this. And I think this is one that Auburn liked um, coming into the game. And I mean, I was just so impressed. And I think really like Campbell just solidified himself as our go-to corner for, you know, the bigger receiver mm -hmm. that a lot of teams are going to have this year. Um, so I was really happy for him. I think, uh, you know, with that, with that cornerback role being, 
kind of the more exposed position that UGA has had since Kirby's been around. It was really nice to see as a group they played well, but specifically um, Campbell just, you know, putting them on an island. Uh, you know, he had one, I think he had one PI, but you're going to have one when you're playing a guy like Seth Williams. And I think it showed the frustration on Bo and for Seth as well, just, you know, thinking they probably had something against our secondary. Um, but yeah, I was, I was really stoked to see him step up that way. Yeah, and then on the flip side, I mean, the run game wasn't much better for Auburn. Yeah, I mean, they really had nowhere to go. And so our sixth stat, Auburn rushed the ball 22 times for 39 yards at 1.8 yards per carry. Yeah, that's probably the most encouraging one. Uh, granted, Auburn had four new offensive linemen, so I don't think they're world beaters on the line by any means. But with Tennessee coming up and Tennessee's ground game's been real strong these last few weeks and they've really relied on it, um, they're a team that you want to force them to throw the football. And if we can stop the run against them like we have against Auburn and Arkansas, we will be in business. But Tank Bigsby for Auburn seemed impressive. I know a lot of Georgia fans wanted to see him in Athens when he was a recruit. Georgia didn't really go that direction, and Auburn seemed to benefit from it. But most of that was dump-off passes. The actual run game was pretty bad. And on the flip side for UGA, the Dogs rushed for 202 yards on 45 carries at 4.5 yards per carry. Yeah, I mean, it really felt like it was more than just 4.5 yards per carry, didn't it? Like, I mean, I think... If you want to, you know, throw a Kirby quote in here about, you know, the offensive line and the Wizard of Oz, how they magically found their strength. Um, you know, I think that's really what it was. I think our offensive line looked like what Jerry Jones has been trying to buy for the Cowboys for the last, like, three decades. Um, and you yeah. know, seeing how they went from week one to week two, um, I don't know, again, if they just stepped up or if they just turned to sink as a group, but I was extremely impressed, extremely you know, excited for pretty much every game now where we feel like we can own the trenches. Um, one thing I, I mm-hmm. did know, Matt Luke went back from McClendon to Condon the start of the second half, so I'm not sure if the competition's just that tight for the right tackle spot or if you know, there's just injuries and they're conserving guys' strength or whatever. But either way, they both look good at that position. Um, it's just something to keep an eye on for the Tennessee matchup for sure. Yeah, I've liked McClendon's performance from what I've seen. Um, I'll have to go back and rewatch this one to kind of – compare the two but definitely an Arkansas game McClendon played uh played a little better but regardless it, it's good to have um multiple guys that that can get the job done on the line and we got multiple guys to get the job done at running back I mean we saw Zeus and Cook get off to a nice start Zamir White probably had his best game as a Georgia Bulldog looked just phenomenal to me Kenny McIntosh killing it on the kick returns like his oh, yeah. average is ridiculous this year and he, he's looking better and better every time he touches the ball. Uh, but even behind him, I mean, Kendall, Kendall Milton went in there and had a run. <laughs> I was like, is that is that Nick Chubb out there? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's so exciting knowing the talent we have and, you know, how young they are and just what a bright future all those guys have um, in the red and black. So, um, okay, our next one, UGA was 9 for 14 on third down. I think this was huge. I think our ability to, you know, get the six, seven-yard gains on first down through the run game. Um, I mean, it's just so critical to, to how Todd Munkin can call the game for our offense and for Stetson. Yeah. Uh, and I yep. think that, like, I mean, I really do think that first pass or that first big pass that Stetson made to Kyrus Jackson on the third down, I think that did give the offense a lot of confidence of, hey, if we do get behind yep. the chains, we have a guy that can, you know, make it happen when we need to. And so I think, you know, all around the offense really put it together. But I do think 
you know, those first down big gains are going to be huge for our third down percentage this year. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we had several six, seven, eight yard runs on first down and, and for Georgia's offense, that makes it so much more comfortable. Third and long can be a really tough situation, but you're right on that first drive. We had a few third and longs and uh, Stetson was coming up clutch every single time and third down in the Jake Fromm years, third down's been a real struggle for Georgia, um, especially early in the season. I know these last two seasons, Georgia's had their struggles on third down. And uh, and so getting the job done on third down on Saturday night, I think was the biggest difference in the game. One of the reasons why Georgia has won, and this is my ninth stat, Georgia's won 13 of its last 16 against Auburn, which is the same as Vanderbilt. Wow. Well, and to throw in another, you know, elite program like Auburn and Vanderbilt, technically Georgia has also won its last 13 of 16 against Georgia Tech. So it's really 16 out of 19 dating back to 2001. Um, but yeah. maybe maybe we should start considering does Auburn need to adopt the triple option and hire Paul Johnson if they want to get the same result as Georgia Tech. Yeah, that's a great point. Um because uh, the bulk of those, or maybe all of them, were under George Tech, under Paul Johnson. I don't really remember. That rivalry doesn't mean that much to me. <laughs> um, <laughs> Auburn one does, and yeah, thirteen out of sixteen. It's got to be demoralizing for Auburn this year because they get us moved on the schedule, so they don't have the excuse. Oh, we have to play Georgia and then Alabama, and our guys are thinking ahead to Alabama, whatever. They don't have that excuse. Okay, they're fresh, they're healthy. Um, and then they've got an experienced quarterback in an offense that he's been running for you know over a year now, going up against a guy who was a fourth stringer a couple weeks ago, and a brand new offense that has only had twenty something practices, and they still lose by three touchdowns. Yeah, you know I think it's just uh, an even year Auburn, and I think you know as committed as the the program and the donors might be to guests i feel like their fans and you know their their fan base and students kind of knows that they not be the guy anymore um but at the same time as a uga fan i'm all for them keeping around uh whatever he feels like is the right way to bring on back he can keep doing that because you know for the last the last five specifically um you know, yeah, UGS dominated them with the exception of a game. And so, yeah, I, I think Auburn has a lot of questions um, when it comes to being able to win, you know, consistently big games. Like they have a one-off over a few years where, you know, they upset mm-hmm. UGA or they upset Obama. Um, but year in and year out, it seems like the program's kind of slipping. Um, it's just so subtle. And, you know, they're really only a few, you know, miscues away from being a team that is finishing seven and five, um, you know, year in and year out. So, Again, I'm okay with it. I think, you know, it's just going to deepen the hatred for, for the fan bases as a whole as long as UGA just keeps winning these games. And I'm excited to yeah. see, you know, the the competition get even more fierce, you know, as Auburn really you know, wants to see that win-loss ratio change against the dogs. So I think it'll, it'll be good for the rivalry for sure. Yeah, I personally am happy with everything just as it is. And I hope 13 out of 16 satisfies Auburn and, and they give Gus a long extension. <laughs> Uh, okay, so last stat, Auburn has not scored a second-half touchdown in Athens since their blackout loss in 2007. Yeah, so their offense has had some woes in Athens over the years. 
Everyone thought this year would be the exception. I mean, again, another element is that the stadium's at a quarter capacity, and so it's it's much less of a home field advantage for Georgia, um, but no difference. We Same results for, uh, for the Auburn Tigers. And that wraps up another episode of the Savage Pads podcast, but we've got another one coming up on Friday. Uh, we're releasing an episode with Keith Marshall, who is a running back U alum, one half of the duo Gershel with Todd Gurley, and a former Washington football player. So stay tuned for that one. Go ahead and subscribe so you'll just be notified when it drops. That's like the easiest way. And uh, give us a follow on Twitter as well. All right, I'm going to stop plugging everything. Thank you for listening, and uh, go dogs.